technology can be a great equalizer or it can create a wider gap. And we want to make sure that we use technology properly to help equalize what's happening, to help close any gap. New York State Assembly member Clyde Vanell is a modern-day politician with a forward-looking mission. In fact, Mr. Vanell recently grabbed national attention for being the first legislator to use artificial intelligence to draft a bill. Yep, you heard that correctly. The New York State Assemblyman used AI to draft a bill. AI can be a time saver. It can help sharpen what I do, but also for me to be able to help come out with proper policy in this space, not only do I have to understand it, I have to taste it. Mr. Vanell's New York State Senate colleagues, landlords, tenants, and the national media were enraged, although the bill was focused around a relatively banal real estate issue. Their anger was not about the substantive nature of the proposed legislation, but rather because Vanell simply used AI. The moral of the story is that the technology today is of generative AI, meaning artificial intelligence that can mirror human think is much more advanced than I thought it was. Using AI, Assemblyman Vanell had more time to focus his attention on the additional needs of New Yorkers. According to Vanell, AI was used to augment the process of research and writing, but naturally, he supervised, shaped, and verified every step of the way, thus saving hours of time and freeing him up to represent the needs of his constituency elsewhere. Assemblyman Vanell and I break down several tech topics during our conversation, including crypto regulation, New York's current use of facial recognition technology, how tech can close the digital divide, digital wallets, and our mutual love of hip hop. I consider the Assemblyman a new friend. New York State is definitely lucky to have him. It was truly my pleasure having Mr. Vanell join me on some future day. All right, it's great to see you today. I'm so happy to welcome New York State Assemblyman Clyde Vanell to some future day. It's honestly a pleasure and an honor to meet you. I think we got to start. You and I have some things in common. I don't even know if we landed on this. Like you're Boston University alumni for law. I went to law school out on Long Island, but I'm Boston University alumni for undergrad. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Oh, my goodness. Did you live on campus or not? Did you live on campus? I lived on campus for a little bit. Then I moved off campus. My roommates and I burned an apartment down. Uh, so we lived in, in Howard Johnson's in Kenmore Square for yes. a little while, if you remember yes. that place with our dog. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. We're both terriers. And then the other thing I, I found um, really interesting is that I know you're a true Renaissance man. You have your own law firm, you're in government, and you, um, for a while, owned and operated a bar down on in Manhattan in the village or the Lower East Side? So, I'm, yeah, I'm crazy enough to be an attorney that's a member of the bar, and I owned a bar. Um, so, yeah, I owned a bar and a restaurant in the Lower East Side. Did that for about six years. was crazy enough to get to that job and I in that position, and I did it for passive income. I opened up a restaurant, Mark, for <laughs> passive income. How crazy is that? You have a, you're obviously a glutton for punishment. And reciprocally, when I was in undergrad, I think the reason I went to law school is because when I was in Boston, I was promoting a lot of the bars and restaurants on Lansdowne. Oh, wow. Oh, my so goodness. I went to law school to like recover from that experience. <laughs> Amazing. The other thing that I think is really cool about you is your jurisdiction, including Hollis, Queens. Isn't that where Run DMC is from originally? Well, now you want to talk about hip-hop credentials. So we have, of course, Red DMC from there. You know, we have a lot of the hip-hop legends uh, you know, from, from Southeast Queens. You can't forget LL Cool J, Tribe Called Quest, 50 Cent, for not, not too far. So you know, a lot, a lot of hip-hop. Uh, and this year, we're celebrating, the world is celebrating hip-hop's 50th anniversary. So yeah, very excited to be from the area where I'm from. So you're telling me, I didn't realize this. So LL and Tribe are also from your jurisdiction? A hundred percent. Oh my list God. Yes. That's amazing. So what are you doing to celebrate hip hop's 50th anniversary? Actually, there's a lot going on in the culture and a lot going on in New York City. Um, as a matter of fact, this weekend is a concert called Rock the Bells. It's like the Woodstock of hip hop that's happening 
uh, on Saturday all day at the Forest Hill Stadium, uh, where they'll have there'll be performances throughout. And there are a lot of free concerts around the city moving forward. So there's a uh, I, I don't even want to name them that there's so many uh, off the top of my head, but you'll see a lot of a lot of uh, tributes and performances and uh, and uh, and many different events uh, commemorating this 50th. Uh, anniversary of hip hop. Clyde, what about um, the old school guys? Will they be there? Like Grandmaster Flash and, you know, like go all the way back. That is who's going to be there, brother. The old school guy is going to be there. The headliner, I believe, is going to be Rakim and Big Daddy Kane are going to be performing. So it's going to be, I'm going to make sure I have my, you know, my my Puma Clyde's on and, uh, you know, really celebrating and, and, you know, really uh, celebrating and honoring the, you know, an art form that was born and bred out of the streets of, of, of New York. One, one controversial thing is where hip hop was born. The, the people in the Bronx say it's from the Bronx. I say it's from Queens, but it doesn't matter. It came out of New York City and we're excited about it. Why is it important? Well, why is hip hop important? Why is art important, right? It's art is really important, right? So culture, culture is important. And culture coming out of art, coming, culture coming out of urban New York, it's important. And the world, and what's interesting is that this little kind of music, this culture of, 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 of music, of, of hip hop, of, of, of more than just music, but this, this culture that came out of New York, that bred out of New York, is affecting the world. You'll find hip hop every corner, uh, in every corner of the world. And uh, it's really exciting to see something that, you know, Mark, that we, we were raised with this, uh, with this music. We were raised with this culture, um, and to see uh, it being celebrated, and to see how it's grown, and it's grown from just, you know, parties on the block in Queens and Brooklyn and Manhattan and, and different places to, to hip hop artists in, in, in the Congo, in Europe, and Asia, and every corner of the world to see hip hop part of mainstream culture is a really powerful, beautiful thing. Clyde, in your opinion, which hip hop artist do you think has had the most impact in a positive way on culture? So it's hard to say to choose one, right? So there are a lot of different, when you talk about hip hop, there are a lot of different artists that have contributed to the culture. Um, so, you know, there are folks that, you know, and, and, and hip hop is more than just music, right? Hip hop is also fashion. Hip hop is, you know, hip hop is uh, also art. Hip hop is also a way of life and how things are. So, so that, so the culture has permeated many things. So, so one of the, let's talk about certain type of art. You know, if we looked at one of the most successful Broadway shows, Hamilton, right? Hamilton is a hip hop performance. If you look at Hamilton, and, and, and when you realize that, you see how that permeated, you know, certain mainstream culture. Uh, when you look at, you know, when you look at fashion shows to see how hip hop has entered into fashion, when you look at music, many of your artists in many genre have have dabbled and have worked uh, with 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 the genre of hip hop. So it would be unfair for me to, to choose one artist to say that they had the most influence on the world. But I just think that the cult, the the music as a whole has. And to look at the lifespan of that music, to see how different the genre of rock didn't last as long as, I'm sorry, rock is still here, but rock, you know, rock and its popularity hasn't lasted as long. Disco lasted for a short amount of time. Hip, jazz, so hip hop is lasting much longer than other genres to, you know, to be uh, so popular and to stay, you know, still, still stay so relevant. Yeah, I, I agree. It really does permeate through so many aspects of culture, from fashion to sports, from art to entertainment. But it's the storytelling, in my opinion, that's so rich. Like, I'll, I'll tell you full transparency, I grew up loving DMC. When I was a kid, I was working in factories in the garment center here in New York City. And that's where I was turned on to DMC early on. But then as I got a little older, Public Enemy just really, really blew me away. And something that I embraced there was Chuck D's ability to tell stories. I learned a lot about black culture, specifically from Chuck D. 
Um, I'm curious, in your opinion, who do you think is, um, or, or who do you think are some of the most important storytellers from, as it relates to black culture and hip hop? When it comes to hip hop, when you talk about, you know, storytellers, right? There are many great storytellers. So I have to, t- I have to, it would be sacrilegious if I don't mention Biggie Smalls, right? So, yeah, so Biggie course. is a great, you know, is a great storyteller. Nas, if you ever listen to Nas's poetry and his poets, you know, Amazing. He's, he's another uh, great one. You know, Jay-Z, uh, Tupac, obviously, you know, Tupac was one. And, West Coast. And then, and then, so, and then the conversation that we're going to be talking about, that when we talk about, when we're speaking about technology and art and protection of these kinds of things and who creates what and what, who owns what, it's all part of this, it's all part of this conversation. And, um, but music, music is culture. Music tells a story. And mm-hmm. these artists, these hip hop artists are poets. And the best ones are some of the greatest poets and storytellers. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, 100%. So I guess that's a good segue. You are chairman of the subcommittee on internet and new technology. What does that subcommittee do exactly? What's the, what's the mission of the subcommittee on internet and new technology? Well, you know, so since I've been uh, elected to this New York State Assembly, I, you know, I've been fighting to make sure that we focus on how to make sure that this country, this state, the city, the state, and this country is a create, we create an environment um, that is conducive to, to innovation, to what's next, to what's new. We want to make sure that the builders and the entrepreneurs build here and they create here. We want the, and I, I can name all the different apps or what have you, we want the companies and the inventors to come out of this country. We want them to come out of New York. We also want to make sure that we close the digital divide. We close the economic gap. And as things progress, right, as things progress, as as technology uh, permeates more and more into society, we want to make sure that we use the technology in a way to be able to to get the underrepresented and the underserved served and better represented and in all fields of human endeavor. So the subcommittee is looking at, is, is like the policymaker futurism, futurism people. How do we make sure that we balance the innovation with making sure that we protect on the backside, we protect and minimize the potential harms of these technologies? So it's really interesting that you, you spoke about balancing or rebalancing um, communities. Do you think that um, this new technology? Let's let's talk specifically as it relates to blockchain and crypto. Do you think that there's a way to create more access for these underprivileged communities, for lower economic communities, as it relates to cryptocurrency and blockchain? And then, if so, how? So, Mark, we've been having a conversation in New York and in this country and around the world about unbanked and underbanked communities that don't have access to to financial products, communities where they don't have access to loans, communities where even when they transfer value, it costs them, they have higher transaction costs than other communities. Communities where they, uh, where it takes longer and it costs more to transfer money transfer value. In other words, let me say it more plainly. It's harder to transfer money to folk that ain't got much money. They have to pay more to be able to transact. So what, one of the things that we were looking at um, as, a, as policymakers is to, to, in order to close that gap or in order, in order to address that issue, some had the perspective of opening more banks in communities, right? So people are underbanked. And folks looked at the footprint of, of, of underserved communities and said, hey, underserved communities have less banks per square mile than bank communities. But in a world in, in, in nowadays, right, you, when nowadays what's happening is that less people are actually walking to traditional brick and mortar banks. What's happening nowadays is that, yes, if, if, if we put more banks in community, in community is that the answer? When 
there are when you have a brick and mortar bank and there are less bank tellers and more ATMs. Or when you look at the tr tr financial transactions are happening more electronically than with traditional banks. So is the answer more brick and mortar banks? Is the answer using digital finance? Is the answer also using figuring out how to send money with lower transactions? Mark, we also have an issue where I am of Haitian descent. My mother and father are both from Haiti. And one of the things my mother does religiously is send stuff and money to Haiti. That's a thing that we do. And she uses, name it, I don't want to name any particular products, but she uses different companies to send money down to Haiti. And it, cost, it can cost her $12 to send $100 to Haiti. It's crazy. Right? And it it's takes, well, how long it takes to get to there. So when we look at cryptocurrency, when we look at these digital finance tools where value can be transferred almost instantaneously and for much, long, much lower transactional costs. And what's crazy, what's counterintuitive, and maybe it's not counterintuitive, maybe it's intuitive, but people of lower means pay more to transfer value. What do you mean they pay more? How, how does that work? So if you look at, if we, if we did, there was a study, I forget who did the study, but if you look at a study of how people that are of, of uh, lower socioeconomic status, they pay more, and people of color, generally speaking, pay more for money. They, generally speaking, even homeowners, people of, you know, uh, minority homeowners pay a higher, generally speaking, pay a higher interest rate than other folks. That's paying for money. Generally speaking, people of lower socioeconomic status pay more to transact. Generally speaking, people of low, lower socioeconomic status that don't have a bank have to go, when they go and and change their paycheck, have to go to a to some institution that charges you more to cash your check than someone with a traditional bank. So, so really, um, this provides an amazing solution. The concept of having a digital wallet, using cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, particularly among um, underprivileged communities, lower economic communities, and its impact on race, it provides an amazing it could provide an amazing impact as it relates to um, savings, moving money. It's my understanding New York City just recently released this report where 33% of New York City's population is either unbanked or underbanked. And something that I was surprised about, Clyde, I read that uh, a lot of these individuals don't have a bank account, not just because they don't have spare cash or, or ID, but they also don't trust the entity, the, the banking institution or the government, they want more privacy. So do you feel that the privacy issue also plays a role in supporting these communities as it relates to access to banking? So listen, I, again, in my position, I, you know, I can't advocate for one or another type of product, but I, I, I want to make sure that communities have access to various kinds of products. And these new technologies are, are, are one of the are one of them. It's one of the solutions that I believe that's important. And I just talked about the problem, right? But there are solutions, right? So, so the solutions is some of the solutions are is making sure that 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 again that people have access to to all these different types of financial products, to all these different types of technologies. And these different technologies have different benefits that others that others may not have. But we want to make sure that people have a choice of of going with a traditional bank or going with with you know with crypto with crypto or going with well one of the things we have to make sure though mark is we have to continuously educate people on what's what's going on with with you know financial education uh, that's something that we we have to do we also have to make sure that we get people we get people to interact with the digital economy that's really important to do so Right. So there are folks that are, you know, that don't trust institutions, that don't trust 
Don't trust anything with, with respect to a card. Don't respect anything digital or don't trust anything for a number of different reasons. But we have to make sure that we, we educate as best as we can and we expose folks to the diverse different kinds of opportunities to be able to, to share, to transact, to save, um, and to be able to receive. Because, Mark, I have small businesses that are, are cash-only businesses, right? I still, that, that in this day and age, right? I, I still, so I have to make sure that I, <laughs> forget about crypto. I have to, you know, before we get to crypto, I have to get people to be able to understand that it's, you know, it's, it's okay to be able to, you know, the different options on making sure that you reduce the friction to receive value in order to get uh, in a position to be able to be able to receive more. So you had mentioned um, that it's important for us to create a system now for government to create a system now that allows for, um, I guess, certainty. You didn't use that word exactly, but I think you were hinting towards certainty towards regulation so that we can attract investment dollars through private equity and venture capital so that we can have job creation here in New York City. Do you feel like our government, like your colleagues, have enough um, knowledge and expertise surrounding, for example, where cryptocurrency fits within the concept of monies that you just described, right? Because I'm not, I don't get the impression you're saying cash fiat currency is going to disappear. I get the sense that you're saying there'll be cash and there will be digital currency. But do you feel that our government officials have enough knowledge to understand the benefits and and um, can protect or, or institute certainty quick enough through regulation so that we can grow jobs here and um, create entrepreneurship, attract investment dollars, and really have New York State benefit? Well, I think that so it's a challenge. So so first of all, I think that New York is in a in a in a really uh, special place to be able to lead in what tomorrow's finance is going to look like. And I think we're behind when it comes to a lot of these, uh, when it comes to these newer technologies. New York is a place where we have something called the bit license that we've had since 2015, that many of the world, uh, you know, much of the world is looking and modeling after uh, to make sure that we protect, uh, we protect our investors and our consumers. And we, we have to try to figure out how to balance that properly. Uh, but all, we're also a place that, that put a moratorium on, on, proof of work mining for two years. Right. That was in April so, of 22. I think you yeah. voted against that. No doubt about it. So, but I do think New York is a place that still we have folks that are from the blockchain community and from the blockchain industry that have put a flag down in New York and to, to build and create jobs and to, and to, and not, but not only in New York city, but all across the state um, that we're excited about the industry that has sprung up uh, in, in this city, which is the financial capital of the world. And I think that we are, my colleagues, going back to the question, you know, we're at a point now where, where a number of my colleagues are, you know, does everybody know everything? No. And you don't have to know everything about, about cryptocurrency. You don't, you don't even have to know how the internet works to use the internet, right? You don't have to know how money works to use money. But, but, but don't put your hand over your ears and say, you know, and, and make noise and act like it doesn't exist, you know, or, 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 or make crypto the boogeyman, which has, which has happened. And, but not only for, for crypto, but for tech, for big tech also. Um, so we have to make sure that we, we are educated and that, and education, again, I'm still learning a lot of stuff in this space and we have to be open and willing to, to learn, uh, to be able to make sure that we provide the proper guardrails, uh, for this technology um, and for this industry that could, uh, that affects so much, you know, of what we do. So, Clyde, my, my question about like capabilities is because I think people are confused. Um, like, for example, the CFTC, which is a federal government agency, declared that ETH is a commodity. Uh, the New York Attorney General said, stated, declared that ETH is a security. The previous SEC chair, Hinman, said that ETH is not a security. And then the current SEC chair, Gary Gensler, 
when about a month ago he sat in front of a in front of Congress in a hearing and they asked him whether or not ETH is a security, he didn't an, he refused to answer. He refused to provide an answer. So I wonder, um, in your opinion, as as a you know as a as a part of our government, like does that have it? Does that uncertainty create a chilling effect? And um, and if so, like. Where's the path towards closure on whether or not something as simple as ETH is a security? So, Mark, the challenge with the, the challenge with this product type, the problem with this this asset class is is its hybrid nature, right? It's like I don't know what what X Men superhero it is that the person that morphs and changes or what have you, um, but that's that's what is a lot of these tokens, a lot of these coins can take multiple kinds of forms. I agree. And in this situation, I think, you know, if it's a duck, you treat it like a duck. But if it's a, you know, if it's a purple cow, now you treat it like a purple cow, right? So you treat the thing how it is with, its, with, with how it's working, right? So, and if it, if it morphs, you know, then we got to figure out how to do that. But is it, how important is, is the definite, you know, so, it's, you know, again, if it's a, so we should try to regulate it to me, depending on its outcomes and what it is, what it is doing. Because some of, some of these tokens, you know, are, are hybrid forms of, uh, you know, can be commodities or, or securities or can be, uh, you know, can be just utilities. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge to figure this stuff out. Another challenge, though, because of that nature of what the thing is, right? We've been wrestling with that um, on on the policy side. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not on the agency side to figure out how to, you know, tax or things of that kind of sort. But what's what's important? What some of the challenges that we've had on the government side is that we we've been having challenges trying to hire and keep talent on the government side to be able to properly address these newer technologies. So Mark, someone comes in, we hire someone, you know, we pay them whatever we pay them or what have you. And, you know, uh, you know, these folks that are, you know, relatively versed in this space, it's hard to keep them for a long time because the private sector, you know, grabs them up and picks, picks them up or what have you. So at least in New York state, we've been having, We've worked to try to make sure that we hire and we pay, you know, people to be able to, with the expertise to be able to stay, to be able to help figure this, this, these things out. But Clyde, aren't, aren't we doing that in, I, I might, maybe you could clarify this for me, but aren't we doing something like that as it relates to people in your seat currently? I think that you just created, you voted collectively. I don't know if you personally voted for this, but- a, a person that's sitting in the New York state legislation now is not permitted to have any outside private sector jobs or, or um, income. They're only limited to the amount of money they earn as a represent, as a government representative. Is that, am I hitting on that concept accurately? That's something different, but that's something that, you know, that's, that's for policymakers. That's for for that's for assembly members and for senators. And actually right. I voted I voted against I think that's wrong. I think I voted against that. I, so how would we well, keep the I best should, people? How how do you keep the best people in there? What like what's the yeah. threshold? A hundred thousand or something? I should be able to go out again, outside of as long as it doesn't create a conflict of interest with what my job is as a as a policymaker, I shouldn't I should be able to go have my own business. I should be able to do other other things and what have you. I don't want to be, I don't want my job to just be this because if my job, you know, what happens when, when I'm just in the, I'm, and I'm talking my, in my position in particular, if this is just my job, then I'm going to be, you know, beholden just for this paycheck. But why, if, but if I'm a successful, I still practice law. I still do. I right. still do a lot of other things. If, if I still, you see, you heard I had a restaurant. If I, if I had these businesses, you know, outside of what I do here as an assemblyman, why do I have to go walk away from that? That doesn't make any sense. And do, don't you want me to come in with the wealth of knowledge that I have and experience that I have 
from the outside world that affects what I'm doing, what I could be doing, you know, uh, in the assembly. It doesn't make sense for, you know, for us to limit that. And that's something that's very important. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of funny because there's like always a nuance or like a contradiction between how we propel society forward through entrepreneurship, um, capitalism and free markets versus restricting and pulling back and creating these governmental safety nets to a certain extent, right? Like on the one hand, we want to protect the constituency to make sure that a seated assemblyman does not, you know, have inside information and use that information to ca- uh, capitalize on a stock, let's say, theoretically speaking. But yet, how could someone in New York City afford to live off of an assemblyman's salary the best and the brightest people simply won't come to to government if that's the case, correct? Not of course. Definitely, you know, we want to make sure that you know we are able to get a diverse group of people to and the best people to be able to, you know, to be in a position to make policy for the state. That's something that's really important. And also, what's really important is that I want to be able to have the option to, when I walk away, stage left from this position, to go private to do my own thing or to continue to do my own thing, to work in my own business, to have my own opportunities. And we need to, well, we, you know, we need to, we're looking at the wrong thing. And if, if the issue is to make sure that there's no conflict of interest, yes, we can have robust conflict of interest restrictions. Um, but to say that you can't make, you can't, you can only make up to a certain amount on the outside is not, it's, to me, it's not American. Uh, right. So it's, it's, it's really important for us to, you know, what I want to do is I want to make sure even for children, for schools, for the community, I want to make sure that people are able to uh, be self-actualized and to go and try to build, go out there and build. And that's 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 not even American. That's 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 biblical. brother. I love the concept of building. I really think that culturally today in particular, we have builders and we have destroyers. And, you know, it's, it's really a breath of fresh air to have the opportunity to talk to somebody that's innovative, creative, embraces new technologies and wants to build. But what happens, you know, in a, in a city like New York City, in a state like New York, where we have so much regulation, is there a way to unlock entrepreneurship in a more effective, innovative way for maybe underprivileged communities? Like what happens if, if you know, you're, you're in a lower economic level of society and you want to open a hair salon or open a restaurant, it seems like you're handcuffed from the outset as it relates to the amount of money and regulation towards, you know, licensing fees, opening up the retail um, area, hiring people. Um, is there is there something new that we can do to, um, I guess, deregulate in certain sectors to help drive growth, particularly in the underprivileged communities? First of all, Mark, you know, part of what's important is, you know, even having this kind of conversation and under- making sure that what we focus our policy on. Uh, and I find that it's really important. We have to, you know, when it comes to government, when it comes to what we're doing in, in government, when it comes to doing what we're doing in New York, it's really important to understand that we have to take care of those that are less fortunate. Uh, we have to take care of those that we have to take care of the least among us. And that means that's least as far as not as a human, but as, as far as uh, resources or what have you. So we have to take care of those that are least among us. And generally speaking, the best way to do that from the beginning was top time was to give folks a boat and not fish. And if we spend a lot, if we spend more time giving people fish, right, they will be dependent forever. But if we give people a boat, they will be able to feed their families for generations. So taking that parable, we have to make sure that we give people the tools to be able to build for themselves. And some of those tools are being able to make sure, making sure that we focus on training of, you know, of business ownership, of investing in education, investing and, and making it and, and making it, making it easier creating an environment conducive to entrepreneurship but when it comes to entrepreneurship when it comes to business uh, business owner i want people not to have not to come up and give me great resumes 
I want people to be able to be the ones reviewing resumes. I want people to be able to give jobs and not get and not have to go get a living wage. We talk about living wage. I want I want more people from underserved communities being the ones providing living wages and not the other way around. And there's a way to do that. And there's a way to focus on what that means. So that's really interesting to me. And I, I'd love to expand on that topic a little bit, but it also se- it's a good segue into artificial intelligence, because as you're very well aware, I know that you recently used AI to um, work, serve as a tool in drafting a bill here in New York state. And you received, um, I think, mainly criticism for it. It was surrounding the real estate sector, but does artificial intelligence provide those individuals that you're highlighting right now an opportunity to access education, not just to provide foundational knowledge about topics, but education towards how to build a business and how to operate a business? Technology can be a great equalizer or it can create a wider gap where you need a wider, longer bridge. And we want to make sure that we use technology properly to help equalize what's happening, to help, or to help close any gap. Mark, I'm still talking about, and we're still dealing with communities that don't have access to high-speed internet. I know. We're still talking about having community. We're still talking about communities that, that can't afford a data plan. Mark, do you know how much a, a decent data plan is now, right? So we're talking hundreds a month, right? Hundreds a month. So we, might, we have to make sure. So when it comes to artificial intelligence, if I'm still talking about connecting to broadband two years from now, imagine how far you know, people that have access to these newer technologies are going to be from folks. So it's really important that it's very, very important to make sure that folks employ and deploy these technologies and they learn and dance and wrestle with it. From the beginning of time, Mark, from the beginning of time, technologies have replaced tasks and jobs. We're at a time now where artificial intelligence, robotics, automation in particular, are going to replace more jobs at a higher rate than than it has been in the past. So lower skilled folks, forget about lower skilled folks. Mark, if, if, if the technology is at a place today where it can write, it can do my job and write a bill, right? White collar folks have to worry about that stuff too, right? So, so what's really important is how is human augmentation? How do humans interact with these technologies? How do we figure out how to wrestle and dance with these technologies so that we can be the master of it, so that we can figure out where we can, uh, how we can make what we do better so that we don't have, so we're not having the conversation of displacement. We're having the conversation of building, growing, and innovation. It's kind of interesting, your comment regarding um, white-collar jobs being on the lookout. If you really break it down, blue-collar jobs actually, for the most part, require some kind of physical activity, a person that's participating to go from point A to point B to complete, to realize that vision. Whereas in the more intellectual, quote unquote, white collar positions, I think that there really could be a layering of um, uh, jobs surrounding law, surrounding the creative classes, certainly as it relates to music. We, you know, we spoke about hip hop earlier, but certainly music, the arts, filmmaking. In your opinion, do you think that short term, it's the blue collar jobs that are more at risk of loss or the white collar jobs that are more at risk of loss as a result of artificial intelligence? Yes. Just kidding. So... Uh, robotics, in particular, right, is going to be will will has been displacing folks in factories for a while. Generative AI, right, the artistic and non-artistic is is, and also just regular AI has has been displacing white collar positions. 
when I first graduated law school a zillion years ago, I used to do something called document review, doc review. And they used to lock me in the basement for hours and hours and hours. And I would have to go through documents looking for privileged documents, meaning looking for documents that had communication between lawyers. And I used to have to, and lawyers, teams of lawyers would have to read this and go through this. So, you know, and that has, I had been, I was replaced by scanning machines. Also, when it comes to, when I use generative AI, when I use these, these large language models to be able to write stuff, right? They can write articles. Journalists have to be careful about that. We, if you can write bills, they can write art. They can write, they can analyze certain types of things. What's really important is again, the reason why I was using it. And again, keep in mind now, I use, uh, I use these platforms now more than I do search because it's just, I just come up with better results. But anyway, one of the things is that maybe, Mark, the creative class has to wrestle with this stuff and figure out how we interact with, with the work product of, these, of this stuff, right? Because I had, to, I had to edit and change the bill as it was, as it was being written. So maybe, we, maybe it can help with first draft. Maybe it can help with what have you. But, but, but what it's going to look like and what it's going to mean for creativity is something that we have to figure out because the accessibility of these programs has been for in public what for six months now. So how, how long let's it, dance. How long did it take you to actually with the use of AI? How long did it take you to write that bill to draft that bill? So it took about maybe you know no more than two hours. Um, so we 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 put the. Um, we put the prompt in and it went and figured out the different tasks. And I think we edited the tasks and, um, and we put it in the, you put it, we put it in the, in the, in the, in the chat, we put it in an agent and a GBT agent. Uh, and then it was in a platform to be able to execute the, the processes. So it took about, you know, no more than two hours. Are you the first person in politics in government rather to use artificial intelligence to draft a bill that I know of. So people claim to say, Oh my God, how could he claim that? So again, I don't want, I don't want any trophies for that or, or what have you. I mean, the, the point is, am I the first, I don't know. I, I, I believe I'm the first to use this technology to be able to research, to write and draft the bill in coordination to, to and, and enter a bill. I know people have used chat GPT, to write their speech on the floor or stuff like that. But what's really important, Mark, and the moral of the story is that the technology today is of generative AI, meaning artificial intelligence that can mirror human think is much more advanced than I thought it was. How long would it have taken you to write that bill without the use of AI? Well, Mark, I don't wanna answer that question, because then I may implicate <laughs> some people that work in, 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 in Albany. And I have great folks that work in Albany that write bills or what have you. So we're not there to replace them tomorrow. Um, and I still use humans uh, in, in bill drafting to be able to, to draft bills. But for me, Mark, as you talked about, one of the things that we were talking about before in a previous question is, you know, should white collar folks be afraid? And that's the reason why I did that exercise. I did that exercise to see that I can, I will use these tools to help augment what I do. Right. So I, I'm going to use these to skill. I'm going to use these tools to be able to do the initial research and initial drafts. But, uh, but these issues are so important that uh, some of the, what I do is so important that I have to make sure that I and humans, people on my staff, are going through it, editing it, using it, but we can use it sure. as a resource. That's how we're going to be using it as a, as a resource. Right. I, I, you know, I certainly think that there's a way to do this 
um, to use artificial intelligence to augment or as a tool. But what people seem to not be covering in the conversations and the media coverage about this is the fact that it allowed for you, it freed up time for you to help your constituency in other ways. No doubt about it. Listen, I mean, you know, AI is a, you know, can be a time saver. It can help me, you know, it can help sharpen what I do. But also, Mark, we have to figure, we have to wrestle with this. We have to figure this stuff out. And, and for me to be able to, uh, to help come out with proper policy in this space, not only do I have to understand it, I have to taste it. I have to work with it. I have to wrestle with it. I have to, to try to figure it out. And I don't want to just do it in theory. I want to actually, you know, roll my sleeves up and, 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 and work with it. Right. Right. Did you, um, obviously I, I see the media coverage and there are a lot of naysayers in the media, but what about your colleagues and peers? Did they also, um, look at this as, um, a, a negative thing? Did you have some negative feedback from your peers in government? Uh, from some, from some, but many, most, many have been uh, positive and we're out of session. Now we have, we, you know, we go back to session in January and I'm hoping that, but before session, we have we passed a bill in New York State called the uh, Artificial Intelligence, Robotics, uh, and Automation Task Force, where we're, what we're going to try to do is put together uh, a task force of folks from industry, from communities, from academia, to be able to really try to help us get the proper guardrails uh, in this space. And we just had a meeting today with some of my colleagues that are talking about this. So, so we, I'm excited that we're even having this conversation. That's awesome. That's really great. Do you find that um, people in general, not just the the government, um, but people in general are pushing back, like they're scared of the newness of AI, they're scared of the newness of Web3 and blockchain technology? Yes, of course. People are scared of the new, people are scared of anything that's new and any change. And and that's understandable because we have, we have a number of different impacts that, that this technology has. Right, we have existential impacts, and I don't even want to talk about what those are. Right, uh, we have uh, we have societal impacts, we have consumer impacts, um, and people, yeah, people are afraid. That's why we have to make sure that that's why it's so important that we convene this task force to be able to try to figure out, you know, how we deal with high risk AI, how we how we deal with a lot of these issues that and potential harms and actual harms that that could be that are happening in in this country. In doing my research, I noticed that um, Queens County has the, according to the 2021 New York State Criminal Justice Research Report, it has the third highest amount of hate crimes in all of New York State. And I noticed also that you voted to enact some technology to help fight what I interpret as you know, this divide, right? We have issues of anti-Semitism, of racism, and so on. In June of 2020, you voted to pass a bill that establishes the New York State Police Body Worn Camera Program. Again, a good use of technology to limit the amount of, honestly, hate that we have here in the city right now. Are there other ways, and I, I commend you for that, honestly, like, are there other ways that you think we can use new technologies to protect the uh, population? No question, right? So we, you know, there are, there are, we are working with the NYPD and uh, and other uh, and uh, the state troopers uh, to be able to deploy certain types of technologies, you know, to you know, facial recognition technologies. Uh, we have we've been using, you know, in the state we've been using certain type of technologies to identify uh, if you know where gunshots have been uh, deployed and and trying to track ammunition, trying to track guns. Uh, we've been uh, using, we've been giving the uh, different agencies the ability to use data to be able to protect New Yorkers. So it's important that we use these latest technologies and to use this stuff, uh, technology to be able to, you know, protect New Yorkers and make New York a safer place. I love that. You know, as a New Yorker, I also acknowledge the fact that you've been really critical in pushing forward a guns for cash program. Um, it just seems like there's too much violence on our streets. I know it's limiting a little bit, but still just even here in Manhattan the other day, a 27 year old woman that I know, um, she works in a coffee shop that I frequent. She told me she was shot in the leg by an 18 year old at her, at her house in Astoria. So what type of, um, steps are 
is the government taking to use technology specifically surrounding uh, gun violence in our city? Mark, when it comes to gun violence, I think, you know, one of the, there's a lot of things that we need to do. But one of the major things we have to do is, again, like I said before, is give people op- economic opportunities, give folks jobs and training. Right. Someone with a lot of these issues are tied to economics and someone with a job, someone with a future, someone with hope is less likely to have these kinds of issues when it comes to violence and when it comes to guns. So that's what we've been focusing on. I agree. I think that um, we see a lot of frustration right now um, throughout the entire country as it relates to um, education, job growth, financial security. And as a result, unfortunately, people tend to act out. A lot of frustration. So that's right. Some future day, New York City residents will use AI to. Oh, I mean, to figure out, you know, the best route to get around the city. Uh, you know, I've been I, I'm stuck in traffic to go to go two, three blocks and uh, there will be uh, which ways already ha- is a form of AI that, that, that does some of that. But uh, will be use AI for, you know, for being able to transport around the city much easier. In some future day, New York City government officials will benefit from AI because because it'll it may help us provide services much more efficiently. It may help us be, uh, to be able to identify where certain inefficiencies are, are happening and to be able to, uh, to provide services to the most needed New Yorkers. And finally, in some future day, New York State's children will use technology to... To build tomorrow. This morning, I brought my 16-year-old nephew with me to, to some of my meetings because I want him to be able to be a master of AI and to be able to deploy AI and control AI and not have, not have AI control his life and his future. Assemblyman Vanell, I thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure meeting you, spending time with you. Thank you for all of the work you do for our state and, and here in New York City. I hope to see you in person soon. Mark, thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, at NYU and in New York City and with your business and with your businesses that you do uh, for all your clients or what have you. And thank you for educating the community and having this conversation. Really appreciate connecting with you, brother. I know your time is very important. So thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day.